Let me pray. We'll get started. Father, thank you. Uh, We acknowledge uh, that we are just um, (laughs) in love with you and what you have done uh, for us. As we get closer and closer to Easter, we uh, stand, uh, we worship you in awe over uh, the fact that you would come search us out and find us and redeem us and give us life and hope and a future. Uh, Thank you. We love you and we pray that your spirit would take what is yours in your word and give each person who's here tonight um, a, a personal message from you. Take your word and apply it particularly to their, uh, their mind, their heart, their situation tonight and this week, please. And we ask you for these things uh, with very grateful hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, book of Numbers, the book of obedience. I'm going to tell you a story from, it's probably a decade old now. Uh, I do not know the people involved. It was from another church in a different state I do not have any personal connection with. Uh, But I still want to tell it to you, um, not by way of gossip, because it's a very destructive story, but by way of warning. Uh, There was um, a pastor in a certain town, uh, and he went into the church that day, and he never came home. His wife got worried, called the church, said, did pastor so-and-so come today? Yes, he did. We saw him in his office. What time did he leave? We didn't see him leave, but... But his things are packed up. In fact, everything is cleaned out. Looks like he's gone. Well, in fact, as they investigated it, he had left uh, with the secretary. And the way they began piecing this together was they found a notepad on his desk, uh, but it was blank. But they decided um, if they took, you know, like a pencil, and if you lay it a certain way and you rub it real lightly, you can see what was written and it pushes through. And he had made a pro-con list of leaving his spouse and pursuing this other woman and leaving town and all this kind of stuff. Uh, Horrible, bad, awful I don't know what, this is a true story. I don't know what was going on in that person's heart. I, I know the, the result was bad. The result was wrong. But what pushed that person, that fella, to that tipping point? He got to a tipping point in his life. And he absolutely, positively made the wrong choice. With every tipping point, there are things that precede the tipping point. And that's what our chapters are on tonight, because Israel reaches 
a tipping point. And what happened? How did they get there? Is what we're going to look at tonight. So, yes, great lesson, great applications for us. But Israel tonight hits a tipping point that is so significant uh, that it causes Moses to write to the second generation about how not to do what their parents and grandparents did. And the author to Hebrews references this story in his admonitions to the people he's writing to. This is an extremely significant story, tipping point for Israel, and it's even referenced in the New Testament. So just when you think, woohoo, Old Testament, it doesn't apply to me, Mm. pause. (laughs) There are some things that are going to apply to us in here. So let's, uh, let's take a look at this and figure out how did they get to where they got. Probably not good English, but there we are. Let me give you, I'm going to give you a, we're going to fly over this, and then we're going to get in the car, and we're going to drive over it, okay? So first we're going to fly over it so you see the whole thing, and then we're going to get in the car and drive it. Take a look at some of the details. Remember, it's just been a year that God redeemed his people from Egypt. And how did he redeem them from Egypt? Key, he, he told them what to do, so by grace, he picked them to do this. They had to believe him, so there's through faith, other key element, under blood. By grace, through faith, under blood. We talked before about that should sound New Testament to you, because it's not Exactly Jesus, but we got the spotless lamb and we got his blood on the doorpost and so the by grace through faith under blood. That's how these people came out. So a year ago, one year ago, they started their walk with God. And so as we look at the first generation from Numbers chapter 1 through chapter 9, which we looked at last week, we saw that they're being prepared for victory because God doesn't just say, hey, congratulations, you're free from Egypt. He has something in mind for them called the promised land. That's where they're headed. Remember, we talked about possess your inheritance, and so he's telling them, here we go. We're going to get that parcel of land that I've promised you. So the first generation is ordered by the covenant, prepared for victory. The saints are called to be soldiers. In chapter 10, we get some trumpets, and actually chapter 9, we've got a a second Passover in the cloud, and then we got the trumpets, and then here we go. On the 20th day of the second month of the second year, the cloud lifts up from the tabernacle, and they set out. So just a year and a month, they're on the march. Chapter 9 through chapter 25, we find out that they've been tested, there's failure, and there's discipline. 
And so Moses, in the book of Numbers, is warning the second generation not to repeat the faithlessness of their fathers and mothers. Remember, he's writing at the end of the second generation. They're standing across from the Jordan, standing across from the promised land, across the Jordan. How did we get here? Here's how we got here. Here's what happened. So there they stand. Moses writes this, and we'll, we'll have three big uh, segments in numbers. This is the first two. The first generation ordered by covenant. The first generation wanders in the desert. And then we'll talk about uh, what comes after that. So Moses is warning them about what happens to the first generation. He's warning the second generation. So what happened. If you got to read this, you went probably, you went, I don't know how to say this town's name, and so I just skipped it. But the town is called Kadesh Barnea. This is where they went, was Kadesh Barnea. So they're down there at Mount Sinai, somewhere in that locale probably, and they begin to head really north, northwest, up to Kadesh Barnea from there. They should be going. You can see it sort of the um, upper right where it says the Dead Sea. They ought to be headed up that way. They ought to be sort of mm, regrouping at Kadesh Barnea, ready to go into the Promised Land. So God takes them from Mount Sinai up to Kadesh Barnea. This is the place of the tipping point. And you say, wow, I wonder what that looked like. It looks like the moon. This is where they were. And why do I show you that? <laughs> well, if you've never seen what it looks like, that's what it looks like. Uh, when you go to Israel, you might not see this, but you'll see some places that are pretty close to this. I don't want to give the Israelites any excuse, but I do want us to have a little bit of sympathy for them. Uh, this would have been a very difficult, hard trip. This is not like getting in your car and driving to Denton or something like that. You're walking through this. Uh, if you've been to Israel and you've been there in the summer, you know it gets up to about 400 degrees, uh, it's really hot, and if you were lugging everything with you, it would have been even hotter, and it just would have been a very, very hard, hard journey. So this is a little bit of the scene for moving from Mount Sinai up to Kadesh Barnea. Big idea for tonight's lesson the greatest challenges God's people face in following Him come from within. It's not what's out there. It's what's in here. The greatest challenges God's people face in following Him come from within. Fly over. Chapters 1 through 9, God, Moses, and Aaron have called and prepared the people to live on mission. God leads them into, 
not around the wilderness, just as he did with the Lord Jesus in Luke chapter 4. Remember he led Jesus, the Spirit of God led Jesus into the wilderness, not around it, into it. Same way he's led his people, not around the wilderness, but into it. Chapter 9 and 10, they begin well, even very well, walking obediently and in an orderly fashion behind God's leadership represented by the pillar of cloud. But things deteriorate quickly. Chapter 11, they complain about their hardships. And so what happens? God decides to um, basically burn some of them up. <laughs> uh, and they name this place Tabera, which means the place of burning. Uh, they go a little farther. And they start talking about this crummy manna that's all they have to eat. Uh, And they wish they had the great food they had in Egypt. And so God says, you want meat? I'll give you meat. (laughs) Uh, And uh, they eat it before they've even gone through the, the ritual practices with it. And so he kills them for that. Uh, and they name that Kibroth Hata'ava, the Graves of Craving. <laughs> and finally in chapter 12, as if this isn't enough already, they rebel against Moses' leadership. Uh, it's a place called Hatzeroth, and Miriam and Aaron decide uh, they should probably be in charge. And God encourages them to think about that a little bit differently. Uh, and so he, he makes Miriam leprous. Um, so things are going downhill kind of quickly right now. Chapter 13, Moses and the Lord send 12 spies into the promised land. So in spite of all this, God is still saying, come on. They have really, back, we're going to, you'll see um, a little while later that um, it's actually the people who want the spies sent. And God says, all right, if you want to send spies, they can go. So 10 sea giants and walled cities, only two say go. You learned this in Sunday school, right? 10 said no, two said go. 10 said no, two said go. Okay. That's why they don't let me inquire. Ten see only giants and walled cities, and only two, Joshua and Caleb, see uh, God's promised land and that God will be with them, and they need to go. Chapter 14, there's more rebellion the next morning. Uh, They become resistant to following God's will. God has told them... um, you're going you're gonna to be out here for 40 years, one year for every day. The spies were in the land for 40 days. You're going to be uh, out here for 40 years, and by the way, none of you will live through this, except for Joshua and Caleb. And then 
even after that, they go, no, 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 we changed our mind. We'll go. And he says, <laughs> Moses says, what are you thinking? Don't do this. But they decide to go anyway. Uh, God continues to tell them what to do, and they continue to do the other thing. So they resist following God's will. They refuse to trust Him and obey His words. They rebel. We aren't going to go. And then they say they will, and He says, don't go, and they go. And so God disciplines them, and so 40 years for 40 days is the result. The first generation is set aside because of their faithlessness and disobedience. This is why this is such a tipping point. The first, can you imagine this? You've seen the plague of the firstborn. You, you've come out through that. The Red Sea, whatever the Red Sea is, you see this rascal open up and you're walking through on dry ground. You've seen God provide for you miraculously for the past year. And he says, come on, let's go. Here we go. They get a little way into it. And the spies say, there's just giants. The descendants of Anak are there. And there's walled cities that reach to the heavens. And we look like grasshoppers to them. Now, if you're in that day, what did you do with a grasshopper? You ate it. This isn't just like you look really small. You look like something that could be eaten by these giants. Yum, yum, grasshopper. <laughs> so when he says, when they say, we look like grasshoppers to them, we look like Marshmallow peeps, we want to eat them. But that's what they thought about the grasshoppers. None of the first generation will possess God's promised inheritance except Joshua and Caleb. The first generation won't receive the full measure of God's blessing. They lose out on his best for them in their generation. This is what happened to the first generation. They had been given such privilege. They had seen such amazing things. And then they say, we're not going. And God says, Burger King, have it your way. That's what you want? Okay. And by the way, everything you were afraid of that would happen to you when you went up there is going to happen to you here. You were afraid to go because of mm 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 mm. Got it. Mm 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 mm. It's going to happen to you here. They lose out. The first generation loses out on God's best for them in their generation. You say, well, what does faithlessness mean or look like? Well, it means I put more trust and faith in myself than I do in God. Um, might be synonyms, self-reliance, faithlessness, you know, kind of self-reliance. Um, 
not sure they're exactly synonymous, but they're probably pretty close. This is the result. Question, what happened? How do I go from chapters 9 and 10 where things start pretty well to things completely coming unraveled and now I'm wandering in the desert for 40 years and I'm going to die? That's going to be my lot in life. I've got 40 years to live, plus or no plus, only minus. What? Shocking. Point. The greatest challenges God's people face in following Him come from within, not from without, from within. That's the flyover. Let's get in the car, let's drive this, and let's take a look at some of the details of what happened. Biggest thing that happened, faithlessness infected their hearts. Faithlessness infected their hearts. They had discontented hearts. Chapter 11, first three verses. Soon the people began to complain about their hardship, and the Lord heard everything they said. Then the Lord's anger blazed against them, and He sent a fire to rage among them, and He destroyed some of the people in the outskirts of the camp. Then the people screamed to Moses for help, and when he prayed to the Lord, the fire stopped. After that, the area was known as Taborah, which means the place of burning, because fire from the Lord had burned among them there. Uh, if, you look, if you look back at uh, chapter 10, verse 33, probably, how many days had they been marching? Three. Three days. Not, now, again, it's the moon, it's hard, hard. I've never marched that for three days, but it's not 30 days, and it's not 300 days, it's three days. They had discontented hearts. What was their complaint? Their hardships and their circumstances. Their hearts this is the second time of complaining after three days. They had a weak, fair-weather faith, and they're complaining, therefore questioning God. Remember, we talked about that in Job. Remember again, you're not allowed to forget anything, so we've covered the book of Job, so you're responsible for everything that happened in the book of Job. Remember that, so remember everybody, they're complaining, and they're doing this, and God goes, who are you to question me, Right? They're complaining, therefore questioning God revealed ungrateful, unsurrendered hearts. They had discontented hearts. A discontented heart, what might that look like? In light of your current circumstances, what are you complaining? Maybe only to yourself. What are you complaining about? 
What are you focusing on? Your circumstances or God's faithfulness and generosity? Are you finding fault with God's leadership? And maybe like Job, you should be asking, what can I get out of this rather than how can I get out of this? Does your heart lack contentment tonight? They had discontented hearts. Not only that, they had divided hearts. The, the foreign rabble who were traveling with them, and it didn't take long to infect everybody, began to crave the good things of Egypt. And the people of Israel also began to complain. Oh, for some meat, they exclaimed. We remember the fish we used to eat for free in Egypt. And we had all the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic we wanted. Now, I'm not a very good cook, but those things are all kind of, um, not spicy, what would you call that? Savory, there's something to it, right? If I have a bunch of onions and leeks and that kind of stuff, there's a, there's a bite to it, right? You understand what I'm saying? What did manna taste like? Compared to this, manna tasted bland and like nothing. And we don't care that God has provided it every morning faithfully. So stinking what? It doesn't taste like anything. We're just tired of eating cardboard every day. <laughs> oh, for the fish and the meat and the melons and the leeks and the onions. Can you hear? I mean, can you hear this? Guess who else can? God. <laughs> oh, goodness. But now our appetites are gone. All we ever see is this manna. <laughs> There's a funny Keith Green song. Some of you are old enough to remember Keith Green. He talked about them making, um, instead of banana bread, it was banana bread. <laughs> oh, it's funny. <laughs> if you've listened to it, it's funny. The manna looked like small coriander seeds, and the people would go out and gather it, and they would grind it up, they'd boil it in a pot. The, the cakes tasted like pastries baked with olive oil. The manna came down to the camp in the dew with the dew during the night. Moses heard all the families standing in the doorways of their tents whining. And the Lord became extremely angry. Moses was also very aggravated. And Moses said to the Lord, why are you treating me, your servant, so harshly? Have mercy on me. What, do I, what did I do to deserve the burden of all these people? Did I give birth to them? Did I bring them into the world? Why did you tell me, let's see, why did you tell me to carry them in my arms like a mother carries a nursing baby? How can I carry them to the land you swore to give their ancestors? Where am I supposed to get meat for all these people? They keep whining to me saying, give us meat to eat. I can't carry all these people by myself. The load is far too heavy. If this is how you intend to treat me, just go ahead and kill me. <laughs> Do me a favor and spare me this misery. Gosh, Moses. <laughs> Woo! 
Then the Lord said to Moses, gather before me 70 men. He takes care of Moses' problem. What about the Israelites? Well, he's going to take care of their problem too. So, let's see. Uh, they get this. Uh, okay, verse 31. Now the Lord sent a wind that brought quail from the sea and let them fall all around the camp. For miles in every direction, there were quail flying about three feet above the ground. So the people went out and caught quail all that day and throughout the night and all the next day too. No one gathered less than 50 bushels. You know how much a bushel basket is, right? 50! How many little quail there were. 50 bushels. They spread the quail around the, all around the camp to dry. But while they were gorging themselves on the meat, while it was still in their mouths, the anger of the Lord blazed against the people and he struck them with a severe plague. So that place was called Kibroth Hata'ava, which means graves of gluttony or graves of craving, because there they buried the people who had craved meat from Egypt. From Kibroth Hata'ava, the Israelites traveled to Hatzeroth, where they stayed for some time. The people are coming unglued. They had discontented hearts, they had divided hearts. Their complaint we're tired of manna. We want meat. Their hearts were double-minded. They took God's daily provision for granted. They had unsatiated appetites for Egypt's food. And they thought, not thy will, but my will be done. It's true God freed them from Egypt but their hearts were never free. Their hearts were still prisoners of Egypt. A divided heart. What's your attitude towards, God, towards God's manna, meaning the Word of God? Do you spend more of your time with substitutes or with the real thing, the Word of God? I'm certainly not against podcasts or any of those kinds of things. But if that's all you do, I'd say be careful. This, this is the manna. This is it. Getting somebody else's uh, digested version um, shouldn't be your only, your only feeding Hopefully that's making sense. Spend more of your time with the real thing. How would you rate your level of gratefulness for God's everyday provision from one to five, five being the highest? Nobody raise your hand. Don't, I don't want to see fingers. Nothing. It's for you. How would you rate your level of gratefulness for God's everyday provision this is his everyday provision of manna. Do 
do you have an unsatisfied appetite and desire for the meat the world offers? According to James, is such a one a friend of God or a friend of the world? Answer, friend of the world. But go ahead and read that in James 4, 1 through 10. The Israelites had discontented hearts. They had divided hearts. They also had prideful hearts. That shows up in chapter 12. Their complaint, and this was particularly uh, Miriam and Aaron. Now, many times in the Bible, the, the name they put first can have a certain, they can be ordered on purpose. So you don't see Aaron and Miriam, you see Miriam and Aaron. And you go, hmm, that's strange, maybe the author just got tired of writing it the other way. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe Miriam was the, Miriam was the instigator and Aaron went along with it. Now, that doesn't excuse Aaron. But maybe Miriam was the one who was kind of behind this, as would be borne out from the rest of the story. What's their uh, issue? While they were at Hatzeroth, Miriam and Aaron criticized Moses because he had married a Cushite woman. <laughs> okay. Evidently, Zipporah is gone and off the scene, and Moses is remarrying, and they're upset because he's married a Cushite woman. Okay? They said, has the Lord spoken only through Moses? Hasn't he spoken through us too? But the Lord heard them. Are you getting the idea that the Lord listens to everything that's being said? <laughs> Parentheses, probably Moses did not write this. Okay, if he did, he's no longer the most humble man on the face of the earth. <laughs> so probably somebody came in a little later, don't want you to freak out, came in a little later and probably added this comment about Moses. Perhaps it was Joshua. It would make a lot of sense if it were Joshua. And you think, oh, what? What are you saying? All still done under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. Remember the first time we saw this was back in Genesis, where it said um, Abram, Abraham chased the people up to Dan. Remember that? Well, Dan was one of the 12 sons, and the land hasn't even been given yet, and so Dan didn't exist, and neither did his land. But they chased him up to Dan. Because somebody went back and said, oh, whatever the name of that place was, it was Dan. Because he's writing it to the Israelites. How did we get here? They chased him up to Dan. Oh, we know where that is. <laughs> okay? It's okay. Don't freak out. It's all fine. But Moses probably did not write, and by the way, I'm the most humble man on the face of the earth. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense if Moses wrote that. Someone else probably came in and added that little notation. Probably Joshua. So immediately... The Lord called to Moses, 
Aaron, Aaron and Miriam and said, go out to the tabernacle, all three of you. So the three of them went to the tabernacle. Then the Lord descended in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tabernacle. Aaron and Miriam, he called. Right now, I would not be standing. <laughs> I think I would be on my face. And they stepped forward. And the Lord said to them, now listen to what I say. If there were prophets among you, I, the Lord, would reveal myself in visions. I would speak to them in dreams. But not with my servant Moses. Of all my house, he is the one I trust. I speak to him face to face, clearly and not in riddles. He sees the Lord as he is. So why were you not afraid to criticize my servant Moses? The Lord was very angry with them, and he departed. As the cloud moved from above the tabernacle, there stood Miriam, her skin as white as snow from leprosy. When Aaron saw what had happened to her, he cried out to Moses, Oh, my master, please don't punish us for this sin we have so foolishly committed. Don't let her be like a stillborn baby already decayed at birth. What must she have looked like for him to say decayed? So Moses cried out to the Lord, Oh God, I beg you, please heal her. What? If I'm Moses, this is why I'm not Moses. <laughs> I would have said, you made your bed, now go lie in it. <laughs> That's why I'm not in the Bible. What does Moses do? The most humble man about whom they're, critici they're criticizing Moses. What does Moses do? Praise to God for them. But the Lord said to Moses, if her father had done nothing more than spit in her face out of um, contempt. Um, if a father spat in a daughter's face, uh, that was bad news, and she had to go outside the camp for seven days. That's exactly what he's talking about here. If, he had done, if, if, she had, if the, her father had done nothing more than spit in her face, wouldn't she be defiled for seven days? So keep her outside the camp for seven days, and after that she may be accepted back. So Miriam goes outside the camp. What's their complaint? Is Moses God's only leader here? What about us? Look at us. Their hearts, Miriam's and, Moses, and Aaron's hearts, were filled with envy and or selfish ambition. Their desire is to lead rather than to serve. What about a prideful heart? Are you critical of one or some of your spiritual leaders? Have you gone to them privately, according to Matthew 18, or do you shop it around for agreement in public? Are you discontented with your current role in God's service? 
Have you gone to God with it first? Will you serve God 100% according to His appointment and will rather than your own? Faithlessness had infected the Israelites' hearts. They had discontented hearts. They were unhappy with God's leadership and or His ways. They had divided hearts. They were unhappy with God's diet and provision. They had prideful hearts. They were unhappy with God's current role for them. Not only that, but their infected hearts dulled their spiritual eyesight. Once the heart is infected, it begins to corrupt some of the other spiritual organs, our eyes. So faithless hearts dulled their sight. So they began entertaining faithful, faithlessness, and that began to impact their eyesight, what they saw going on. They began to second-guess God. The spies told them, really, nothing new. Their enemies were known all the way back to Genesis 15. The land was theirs, God had said so, and God promised to, and in fact did, lead them there as well as lead them to this place. They didn't learn anything new. But the dulled eyesight revealed their yet unspoken doubt in God's Word and God's character. They lost perspective. Ten only saw enemies who appeared larger than life. Walled cities that couldn't be overthrown and personal weaknesses that loomed larger than God. Their dulled eyesight caused them to focus on obstacles and problems rather than focusing on God. They followed their own counsel rather than God's will. Going back to Egypt seemed like their only hope Returning to a place of perceived security. Unbelief has now turned into outright rebellion. And their dulled eyesight caused their discouragement to turn into fear, and they took matters into their own hands. And so God disciplined them. Moses interceded for the people. God forgave his people at Moses' request. And although God has forgiven them, God still disciplines his people. Dulled eyesight eventually brought God's corrective discipline upon them. It's a great aside. God has um, correcting discipline and perfecting discipline. Correcting discipline, right here. You're going in the wrong direction, 
He's going to turn you to another direction, correcting discipline. But he also has perfecting discipline. You haven't done anything wrong, but you're not perfect. And therefore, there is perfecting discipline to make you more like Christ. You say, what? Again, book of Hebrews. How did the Lord Jesus learn discipline? It says he did. It wasn't for correction. It wasn't even for perfecting, but that's as close as you can get. How is the Lord Jesus disciplined? I don't really know. But the Lord disciplined him. Why? Because he disciplines those he loves. And lack of discipline, again in the book of Hebrews, when we get to it, we're going to cover the book of Hebrews. When we get to the book of Hebrews, you're going to see that only legitimate sons are disciplined. To not discipline a child is to basically make them an illegitimate child. Jesus was disciplined because that is another proof of his sonship. Oh, come on. Good stuff. Dulled eyesight eventually brought God's corrective discipline upon them, which revealed more self-reliance. They'd made up their minds concerning what they were going to do. They'd go against God's revealed word if needed. They even believed if they went up and fought after he told them he wasn't going, that this would please him. They believed they could accomplish God's work in their own strength. Reminder of what Jesus says in John 15, last part of verse 5. Apart from me, you can do a lot of good things. Oh, no, that's not what it says. <laughs> Apart from me, if you only knew Greek, you know what it says in the Greek? Apart from me, you can do nothing. That's what it says. You can do nothing. You know the Greek word for nothing? It means nothing. Do you know what that verse means? Nothing. It means nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. What are they trying to do? Something. By the way, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You might have read that also in the book of Hebrews. I know. We're going to get there. Dull eyesight tricked them into putting more trust in the power of their flesh than in the power of God. What happened? Their hearts were filled with faithfulness and self-reliance. Sometimes our hearts can get filled with faithlessness and self-reliance, and it's going to impact our eyesight. How's your spiritual eyesight tonight? Do you second-guess God and or His choices for you? Do you focus more on obstacles and problems or on God? Does discouragement usually turn to fear, which makes you take matters into your own hands? Do you have spiritual cataracts that trick you into putting more confidence in your ability than in God's? Faithlessness, I try to think of, what's, what's a way you can remember faithlessness? Remember when you were a kid, you, the teeter-totter, you know, the thing that would go up and down like that? 
And usually you got on it with a friend, and this is one, one way you found out who your friends were and who your friends weren't, right? And it was one of those kids that when I was up in the air and he was on the ground, he jumped off, poof, that's faithlessness. There's nowhere to go but down. Faithlessness is that kid. I still remember his name. Faithlessness is that kid. He jumps off the teeter-totter, and I come crashing down. The heart of the matter is our hearts, even tonight, may be flirting with faithlessness. In reality, your heart may be discontented, divided, or even struggling with pride. And maybe mine is too. For example, uh, I just put this slide in tonight. That's, not, that's why it's not in your notes. So I'm gonna, these are the XYZs of faithlessness, okay? Here's kind of the sentence. If I only had a little more X, I'd be happy and content. But God probably won't give me any more X. You fill in the blank. Money, health, love, respect, influence. You fill in the blank. You fill in the X. If I only had a little more X, I'd be happy and content. But God probably won't give me any more X. What comes after this? This is the justification for me taking matters into my own hands. Because God's not going to solve my problem, so I'd better solve it. You believe that it's in the Bible somewhere, God helps those who help themselves. <laughs> it's not in there. <laughs> you can look for it if you'd like. You won't find it. If I only had a little more X, I'd be happy and content. But God probably won't give me any more X. If I only had a little less Y, I'd be happy and content. But God probably won't take away any of this Y. Stress, pain, anxiety, discontentment, you, you can fill in, the, you fill in the blank. If I only had a little more, if I only had a little less, here's another good one, X, Y, Z. If God would change my Z, I'd be happy and content. But God probably won't change my Z as much as they need to be changed to suit me. You fill in the blank. What's the problem with all these? Eyesight's wrong. If eyesight's wrong, what's going on? It's a heart problem. Something's wrong in my heart. I've got a discontented heart. I've got a divided heart. I've got a prideful heart. You say, well, I don't have a prideful heart. Okay. Do you have a self-righteous heart? Oh, sorry, did I say that out loud? 
oh Lord, thank you for not making me a Gentile or a woman. If I only had a little more, if I only had a little less, if God would change. All of these are about perspective. All of these are about eyesight. But what's really going on? It's my heart. And when I start looking out there and saying it's because of my circumstances or relationships or you fill in the blank, I'm missing the whole point of this lesson. Because the whole point of this lesson is about start inside. Start with your own heart. If the Israelites would have started there, I don't know what would have happened. Maybe something good. But that's not what they did. And it was a tipping point. Humongous story in the Old Testament that leaks over into the New Testament. So how do we strike back at faithlessness? First, acknowledge to God, not to me, not to anyone else, unless you want to, but I'd start with God. Acknowledge to God that your heart is infected and in need of His grace daily. You say, whoo-hoo, that's not me tonight. Mm. Really? I'd encourage you to ask God about that. Maybe it hasn't reached the tipping point in your life yet. But maybe there's something going on in there. And we need to settle or resettle four issues tonight. First is who will have authority in your life? Will it be God in the Bible? Will it be you, a spouse, a friend, a coworker, who, the internet? <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> who will be the authority in your life? If the Bible says it, God says it. If God says it, the Bible says it. Is that a sufficient authority for you? And if you say yes, then I say, really? All the time? Every time? You've got to settle and resettle the authority issue. Second, trust. Look up to your Father first in faith, more than focusing on the facts and circumstances you see. We all see things through different lenses. Go to daddy first. Perspective. Remember that God leads us through hardships, not around them for our good. What does he say in Romans? How many things work together for good? How many things? Oh, it doesn't really mean all, does it? <laughs> yeah, you want to know what it says in the Greek? It says all. <laughs> I hate to be such a Greek scholar, but that, it says all. <laughs> all. 
How many things? All. Are you kidding me? I may not see how it works out for my good. Right? Fair. But God says, all things will work out together for my good. Okay. Do I trust that? Is that my perspective? Or is it, nope, I've crossed him one too many times and he's written me off and now I'm on my own. So I'd better start managing my life. I'll let you know, Lord, when I get to another really big one. And confidence. I love what Warren Wiersbe says. God's path will never lead you where God's grace cannot sustain you. God's path will never lead you where God's grace cannot sustain you. We've got to settle the issue of authority and trust and perspective and confidence daily, daily. Revisit this over and over and over. The greatest challenges you and I face in following God come from within, our own faithlessness. Let me pray for us. Father, I know that's uh, true too many times in my own life. Uh, My faithlessness takes root. It seems so, it's like a weed. It just gets in my heart and it grows so fast and it's up and sending out little uh, dandelion things like crazy in my heart before I'm able to dig it out. Um, I I just acknowledge that and confess that. Uh, I am a faithless person so many times. I thank you for your continued mercy and grace, your unfailing love that continues to walk with me and support me and encourage me and uh, lead me to follow you. Uh, You are worthy, and I want to keep following. Thank you for knowing about my faithlessness and for continuing to kill it uh, on the inside where it lives through the power of your Spirit. Thank you for doing that. I pray that... uh, you would work equally hard and equally as effectively in all of my brothers' and sisters' lives. I don't know what they're struggling with tonight or may struggle with this week, but you do. Your Word is our authority. We're confident in you. You give us the right perspective, and we can certainly trust you. Uh, We love you, and we do trust you, and we pray for all of these things this evening, please. In Jesus' name, amen.